The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Sequel Quest, episode 121. A sequel to Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter is Dead. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. Due to a recent social media snafu with fellow podcasters on the Retro Network, The House Show, Sequel Quest begins this week with a special message. Hey yo, survey time. Do you want to listen to the good guys or the bad guys? You all know that Sequel Quest is too sweet, and yet we got The Mouse Show thinking they could disrespect the sequel pack. You think we're not in competition for the TRN Trios Tag Team Championship? Let me tell you something, sweet Maddie treats. You car sushi eating fool. That dirty mouth of yours is gonna be eating big fat Rikishi style crow by the time we're done with you. And the educator of excellence. Who are you, Lanny Poffo, with your mortarboard swinging on the mic? Now you're about to get a degree in shutting your face. And even Dean Douglas won't be able to get you out of this mess. Kevin Hellions, you Alan Moore wizard beard looking punk. So you like to make jokes, huh? Well, next time those crickets start chirping, it won't be an awkward silence. It'll be because we stuffed that funny mouth of yours with $100 bills, or Mr. Sacco, or the foaming at the mouth that inexplicably occurs when a snake slowly glides over your chest. Anyway, you get it, and you're gonna get it when the sequel pack brings the podcast pain to the main event. And now we bring you Sequel Quest. Hello there, and welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where we pitch prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Tonight we're digging into a comedy cult classic from the 90s with a cast of familiar faces, but first allow me to introduce you to the group of snot-nosed podcasting brats you'll be babysitting tonight. First up, fresh from his shift at Clown Dog and reminding you to put on a happy face, it's Jeff. That is me. Next is the man who's currently borrowing a couple bucks from the petty cash to buy a Mama Celeste pizza. It's Jeremy. Wait, what? <laughs> and of course, I'm right on top of that, Rose. It's Adam. And returning to the show tonight, a Sequel Quest alumni who is a firm believer that podcasts rot your brains. It's Eric. Do they? <laughs> We probably shouldn't do this then, should we? It's not scientifically proven yet. <laughs> Hi, everybody. So, yes, uh, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. You've seen the show description, but if you've never seen the film, Jeremy, tell him what it's all about. All right. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead from 1991, starring Christina Applegate, Josh Charles, Keith Coogan, Danielle Harris, Kimmy Robertson, and David Duchovny. Directed by Stephen Herrick. When a stressed-out single mom takes a much-needed vacation and leaves five siblings in the care of Mrs. Sturak, the strict elderly babysitter, they plan to revolt. That is, until the babysitter dies 
of old age, leaving all the kids on their own without cash or a clue as to how to take care of themselves. In a game of chance with Mama Celeste against her stoner brother Kenny, Swell is chosen to find a job and ends up faking her way into a position as a high-level executive assistant to the head of a uniform manufacturer. Will Swell's lies get her caught up in a scandal, or will her innate fashion genius gain her greater acclaim with the boss before mom gets home? Now, Eric, we've been trying to get you back on the show for a while. We had to find the sweet spot, a film that really meant a lot to you. And <laughs> we just happened to bring up this movie, and you had the, the most joyous reaction. What can you tell us about your relationship with this movie? Okay, so I have to confess something, because I'm getting old, and when you, you sent me that message, and I saw that, I read it, and my brain processed it as adventures and babysitting. <laughs> I was wondering and I if was that like, was like, oh, I love that movie. That movie's great. And then for like a week, I kept thinking of movie pitches and like, what can we do? And like, oh, what's Elizabeth Shue up to these days? Oh, she was on The Boys. Oh, I like that show. Yeah, she's great still. And I was coming up with all these ideas. And then this morning, I checked my message again to make sure that today was the correct day that we were going to record this. And I I read the message again and I looked at it and it said, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. And I was like, oh, I love that movie too, but that's not what I was thinking of. <laughs> so I had to like throw away everything that I had thought of. And then I had to watch that today because I was like, well, I, I know I remember it. So I went on a whole emotional journey. Sure did. And apparently I am drawn to babysitter movies except for <laughs> The Babysitter's Club, which uh. apparently has been rebooted on Netflix. I will not be watching that. So yeah, I honestly don't remember seeing this movie in the theater, although I'm sure that I did. But I remember so many parts of this movie. Like when I started thinking about this movie, at least 10 different like lines. And this movie taught me what petty cash was. I had no idea. And I also learned how to fake a resume. I, I love so many parts of this movie, but I Is that a like skill you've utilized since then. No, no. Okay. Good. Not at, okay. Not at all. But he knows he could pull it out at any moment. If needed. Are you copying the whole thing? No, I changed the name. <laughs> well, and Eric, speaking of Adventures of Babysitting, obviously there is a connection there. So you weren't 100% off Babysitter in the title and Keith Coogan, who plays Kenny in this movie. He was also in Adventures in Babysitting. He was the kid who was like the nice guy who was super into Elizabeth Shue, very excited that she was coming over to babysit. Is his whole career based on babysitting movies? <laughs> It seems that that was the case. I will mention, you know, my connection while we're on the topic of adventures and babysitting. Sure, we'll get to that movie someday. <laughs> but I've talked about before that the first movie I saw in theaters was Beetlejuice when I was six. But the first movie I actually saw outside of my home was Adventures in Babysitting at the drive-in movie. First time around seeing a movie on a literal big screen. Uh, but Jeff, what about you? Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Did you catch up with this one in the 90s? 
movies or today? I had literally never seen this movie until today. I was the same way. And then not only that, I have never differentiated them in my mind. Anytime someone has said those two, I've used them interchangeably to talk about the same movie. And don't get me wrong, I've only seen Adventures of Babysitting maybe once. So, yeah, this was... Oh, I've, this was... I've seen that like ten times. All right. I can't believe this. This is amazing to me. Okay, and Jeremy, are you going to back me up on this? It's a great movie. You've seen it a million times. Uh, no, I've only seen it a couple times, but I knew which one we were doing the whole time. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, that's... You get a that's gold star. <laughs> Now, I mean, I'll say for me, so yeah, this is a movie I definitely saw at the theaters. This this is a big film of my childhood because the title is so goofy, it just catches your attention. But the truth of the matter is, the original title of the film was The Real World. Right. So the script as it was written was by this oh. guy named Neil Landau. It was called The Real World. And, you know, he'd only ever written like a few TV episodes here and there. He wrote uh, two episodes, though, of The Secret World of Alex Mack on Nickelodeon after this but he said he was basing this film this idea on the tom cruise film risky business which i just watched for the first time last week this guy's parents go away and somehow he uh, ends up running a brothel out of his house they didn't go that direction but oh boy that would have made this movie <laughs> way different it was in fact going to be a darker film and it was it was a more serious movie about kids being left in a situation where they had to grow up faster than they were ready for. But then the studio bought the script and they said, yes, but Home Alone just came out. And when a kid is Home Alone, it's funny. So we want to add a lighter comedic tone to your script. And then the real world title wasn't going to work because MTV was just about to launch their first reality series, The Real World. And so they said, we want to avoid confusion. So just at the last minute, they came up with this idea for Don't Tell My mom the babysitter's dead the cast was like huh like i, I listened to a couple interviews with them and they're just like they told us at the craft services table here's the new title of the film guys so yeah uh, but but i watched it i rented it and then as soon as i found out that it was on dvd i have a copy that i've had for years that i watch over and over again it's a special movie and we'll, we'll get into each of our opinions about this but in my opinion it stands out and that i think it actually does for the most part, stick with a pretty straight and serious tone. I mean, there are some funny moments, but it's not because the characters are outlandish and ridiculous. Like, they're pretty much just like people you would meet in the world, just a tiny bit exaggerated. But I'm curious for you then, Eric, as you were catching up with the film, uh, did it have, a you know, again, that same impact for you? As you say, you were remembering so much about it, but did you enjoy watching it again? So I enjoyed it from a different lens in that like childhood me like i guess this came out when i was like 11 i think it was 1991 right right so and then i know that throughout high school this is probably one of those movies that came out on hbo that i watched over and over again so like childhood me thought this movie was great like i just thought it was amazing so watching it again today like all those comedic points like i was still looking forward to those and some of them would catch me off guard i'm like oh yeah what i like and then also when it's a movie from 1991 i also enjoy the technology creep you know of like oh there's a fax machine or like she doesn't know how to use a fax machine and like that's just the technology stuff that's like nobody ever uses she uses a typewriter to write her resume so that was kind of fun but then adult me 
who teaches middle school children. <laughs> like I'm watching this and I, I finished the whole movie and I'm like, there are no consequences for anyone in this movie. Like <laughs> nobody is held accountable for anything. And she gets away with all of this. And it's like, everything's fine. And I was like, no, <laughs> this doesn't happen. So I was just, I kept waiting. I'm like, when's it going to get bad? And it, I think the whole crux of the movie comes down to a chores montage. They, they do chores to clean up the house for the party. And it's like, everybody pitches in for chores. And I was just like, this would never actually happen, but I still <laughs> enjoyed it. I don't know. It, it's a fun movie and I really like it. I think my favorite part, and I, I appreciated it now more than I probably did as a kid was there's that part where they have cleaned up the house. She comes home from a long day and her and Kenny are arguing and they're arguing like a married couple. And he's like, you don't appreciate me and I'm do cooking and cleaning and all this. I'm working on the fastball. And she's like, I work in traffic and I blah, blah, blah. And they're arguing. And I watch that and I'm like, oh, this is like they're they're making a play like they're adults, which is kind of like where the real world kind of thing. I think that's part of what they pulled in from that. But I as an adult, I thought I found that funny. Whereas a kid, I was probably like, why are they arguing? And then that comes to my favorite line of all. It's like, I didn't tell you to whisk the couch. Well, it needed it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a perfect 90, early 90s movie, but nobody is held accountable for anything. Yes, I mean, that that's probably the most fantastical, outlandish element. Yeah, the, the lack of consequences. Jeff, what, what did you think about the general state of this film, first-time watch? And, and you guys, I think you guys know, this did not come out to critical acclaim. It currently holds like a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes. And one of the, the things that they said about it was it's like Home Alone meets Working Girl. Which I felt like, yeah, I mean, the bulk of the movie felt like it was more about her trying to succeed as, it was almost like big. It was like him trying to succeed as an executive. I did feel like my one kind of like critique, I think, is that, especially having been a fan of Married with Children, and then years later, Samantha Who, that was her big, her big breakthrough show. And then she did uh, Up All Night, which was our favorite. Christina Applegate has amazing comic timing, and she is so good, but she wasn't the comic in this. Like, she was kind of the straight man through all of it, and just kind of trying to play the adult and stuff like that. Which is kind of a bummer, but it was kind of what needed to have. Well, and I, I think, that, yeah, that's an important distinction, right? Yeah, because on Married with Children, she was on that show for so many years, but the evolution of Kelly Bundy was very different. Like, I actually wrote a whole article about this for Retro Days many years ago about TV characters who got stupid. They didn't start out like idiots, and then they just got stupider and stupider, and she was that character. Kelly Bundy originally was just like a bratty teenager, and then and like you know, around third and fourth season, she just became the airhead bimbo, and that was the joke. She couldn't spell things, she couldn't do anything, you know, and, and so right. she just became totally ridiculous. And I don't feel like Christina Applegate really showed her comedic chops to be respected until Anchorman. I feel like that was where she really was, she was shining, and you're just like, wow, she's amazing. But yeah, but during the Kelly Bundy years, you're right, that's what you would expect, but she kind of went back to the original Kelly Bundy for right. this movie. Well, and that was, and that could be maybe even part of it, is that I know that was, like, I've heard interviews and stuff like that from the Married with Children cast, and they've said that 
they kind of hated that where they said like, yes, I think she nailed it. And she played one of the best like bimbo characters on television. She was hilarious, but they were like, she's so much more talented than this. Like this is very one dimensional that they're writing her. And they, and, and I'm sure she got typecast, you know, that they would put her in stuff as the gorgeous blonde airhead. And you know, that was, yeah. Yeah. I mean like she's in Mars attacks for five seconds as Jack oh. Black's girlfriend. And she just puts on a Southern accent, but she's a, southern accent bimbo you know like that's all the only difference in mars attacks come on (laughs) the whole movie oh well and here's an important thing too jeff also is that that part of swell was originally written for winona writer right i saw that yeah it is interesting like and like you were kind of saying eric like obviously we see you know we look at the technology and we're not supposed to have that reaction you know when, when you're watching it to their ancient technology but we do and you know some things age well the one thing that definitely does not age well was gus and the creepy like 40 year old somebody who keeps hitting on the 17 year old is yeah, just that was bad well but he thinks she's mid-20s at least <laughs> right but it was he was like doing classic gaslighting of like oh if oh. you're not into it i'm just kidding and you're like oh god just oh. take a clue but back in the 90s it was and especially early 90s that was and not only that i feel like that same actor has played that same character many a time yeah the creepy talk old about guy. typecasting oh i know oh <laughs> Well, then David Duchovny as well. Oh, I completely oh, forgot was in this. Movie. I know from Goodness. this and Beethoven, he just played those slime ball guys in his early career. You know, there was a lot of gel in that hair, that slicked <laughs> back hair. Maybe the highlight of the movie for me was David Duchovny's accent. I just, I don't know what was that. What, 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 <laughs> what accent, accent did you detect? Yeah, he had this like New Yorker sort of like. Yeah, it was kind of ridiculous. Well, and it's weird. I don't understand his relationship with the receptionist like why no. they're buddy buddy and he, he's totally in on like let's get that girl yeah let's right. humiliate her i guess because she dressed him down when he came yeah, she in she talked uh, him down one time and then he's like let's get her and i'm like <laughs> you were being a jerk because she was on the phone <laughs> i was gonna say some of that too is like the working girl dynamic is that there is the male female like excuse me like you're a girl and so there is that thing of not only like am i young trying to prove myself but i'm also i'm a female Email trying to prove myself so there are a couple of tropes that are over overlapping here now I, I will say you know go back to keith coogan as kenny because i mean he is like the breakout character right he's the fonzie of this movie you know he's, he's the one where you're just like okay he's got the fun lines he's just over the top ridiculous his room is a character in and of itself like well, it kills the babysitter yeah <laughs> Uh, just about i had never noticed that till this last watching that she's like yeah like short of breath when she leaves that room seeing all like the nudie posters and, and there's even a misfits poster there which i noticed and other things but it's weird like just speaking of which like you know this movie's pg-13 imdb claims this movie features seven uses of the f word i only counted one when he drops his pot plant oh no he says it a number of times oh yeah. okay but keith coogan he auditioned for the part but they wanted him to be Brian, the clown dog boy that Swell, you know, falls in love with. So he's like, he got his own outfit to be a rocker and came back in. He's, you know, he said basically, okay, I did, I read, did my reading. Can I show you something else? They're like, sure. And he came in in character and they hired him on the spot. They're like, okay, you're our Kenny. And uh, he even took it so far because he loved playing it so much that you guys remember Good Day LA, right? Uh, Eric and Jeff, 
you know, the morning show with uh, Steve yes. Edwards. And, sure. And so he went on that show in character making Belgian waffles with Steve Edwards, the host. <laughs> and he wouldn't break character. The host kept saying, who, wait, who are you, though? Tell us about making the movie. He's like, no, man, you got to go see it because I loved it. And then so he ripped the wig off his head and then put the wig on his own head, the host. So he's just like, he was not having it. But he said he had a great time doing that. But yeah, I mean, obviously the, the most iconic line from this and from the trailer, and I know it's the reason I wanted to see the movie, was the dishes are done man like so great i mean and it's a total bill and ted moment and Stephen herrick the director directed bill and ted's excellent adventure so he seems to always be in these movies with characters that are rocker stoner archetypes at least um were you guys kenny fans at all did you enjoy his arc it's kind of sudden in that he like cleans up all super nice but i i did like the fact that they kind of clean him up through like he started cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he went, he was, was it Julia Child? He's like, Julia Child made this on TV yesterday. <laughs> one funny thing, well, I thought it was funny, but at adult me watching this, at the beginning of the movie when Swell finds the babysitter dead, he's sneaking, he's coming back home, and he gets into his room, and he takes out a plant from his bag, and it's totally a pot plant, but like Kid Me had no clue. <laughs> so, like, he puts it on the windowsill, and it falls over, and I think he swears at that point. But I was like, oh, that's a pot plant. Yeah, that makes sense. And you also got to wonder, why is the butt ripped out of his jeans? You know, it's like, you know, we, we had the whole, like, you know, ripped knees in your jeans back in the day. But, like, under your cheeks? Like, I, I don't remember anybody doing that back in the day. Yeah, we could keep that fashion trend back in the 90s if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, going through the cast a little bit here, because, like, I, I feel like the kids as a family unit work pretty well. The only one who kind of stood out for me as not being super great, or at least underwritten, is the kid who played Zach. His name was Christopher Pat- you know my moon goddess my moon goddess He's obsessed with the I'll girls. I'll get that. I'm the Mater D. Yeah, but he was 14 when he made this movie and already addicted to drugs. And he oh. actually eventually died of an overdose at 24, which is really sad. But I was just like, he was 14 and he was already like, that just seems pretty intense. Like, um, on the other side, a child actor who has continued to have a, a wonderful career is the actress who played Melissa danielle harris you know she's the tomboy character and originally it was jennifer love hewitt who was cast in that role but she couldn't get out of her contract with kids incorporated on the disney channel and so they were scrambling to find somebody danielle harris said it was her first day in la she had just gotten an agent and the agent said oh they're looking for somebody and she literally auditioned her first day in la and got the part it was just like Dun, 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 you're in a movie. Okay. Isn't that how it works for everybody who goes there? <laughs> it's a land of miracles, Hollywood. But do you guys know what Danielle Harris is probably most famous for? Which franchise she's from? She did Halloween, right? Yeah. So she's yeah. Michael Myers' niece in Halloween for the return of Michael Myers, and then in part five, the curse of Michael Myers, but she's barely in that. But it's funny because if you notice, she says that they should hack off Mrs. Sturek's head when they're going to put her in the trunk, and then it breakfast she's stabbing her toast with a knife you know so like there's just like shades of <laughs> her psycho character to come with that but I'm, I'm curious for you steven herrick getting back to the director did you notice eric what other show you've been on to pitch a sequel for that he directed which movie he didn't do the mighty ducks did he he did what that's steven herrick yeah. no 
I mean, Bill I had Ted's no clue. Critters, the Mighty Ducks, Mr. Holland's Opus, the Chris O'Donnell Three Musketeers movie. <laughs> he did Critters? Yeah, the original. That movie messed me up for years. Because <laughs> there's like, a, I th- if I'm remembering correctly, which I'm probably not, there's a scene where like they all get into like a giant ball and like squish people. They like roll. Is that Critters? I think that's Critters 2. Oh my god, that movie. I was so afraid of that. (laughs) But it's weird because he was actually the last choice to direct this movie. They talked to John Landis, they talked to John Hughes, they talked to Joe Dante, Richard Donner, Chris Columbus, Amy Heckerling, who's going to do Clueless, right? Joel Schumacher. They all turned it down. It's Stephen Herrick's last choice. But like I said, I think he did a good job keeping like a pretty consistent tone with this movie. But like just said, Jeff, it wasn't a, uh, a commercial success by any means but as you referenced eric it did actually run on hbo constantly i mean that's that's how it built up its cult status but yeah i I don't feel like it's a movie you hear very many people talk about from the 90s but the vhs rentals as well which is where it found an audience apparently on the vhs tape they have this big marketing budget and there was a thing where you could answer trivia from the film send it in and you'd be entered to win the babysitter's buick so somebody won mrs they got it away from liza minnelli <laughs> liza drag queen stealing your car that was probably like the most like outlandish moment i feel like that was, yeah, the moment that was like... pretty out there and i was <laughs> thinking like uh is this language problematic i don't know how i'm supposed to feel about this. <laughs> now do you guys know that the one actor who i've only ever seen in one other thing but i know he works is josh charles Oh, he was on The Good Wife for a long time. He was okay. great in that show. Yeah, that's where I immediately recognize him from from my most recent view. I'm like, oh, that's that's The Good Wife guy. So I know him from that. It, I know he was on the Wet Hot American Summer sequel on Netflix. He played like one of the evil frat boys from a, a rival camp on the other side of the lake or whatever. So he was like the villain in that. And I was like, oh, it's that guy. But yeah, I don't think I'd seen him in anything else. Oh, so- Josh Charles is in Dead Poet Society. That's the other oh. one there I remember him from. He's one of those nice white boys in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> In a sweater vest. Yep. They all look the same. (laughs) Of course, I love that toy store scene, right? Where they're jumping around and bouncing and I'm looking at the shelves. I'm like, what toys do they have? This is obviously a Toys R Us. Finally, for me, I guess I would say the most deep cut Easter egg is that when Swell is getting into the petty cash, you know, that educational moment for you, Eric. um, So much petty cash. They play a song that is in the background that is called Gimme Some Money that is performed by the band Spinal Tap. It's from This Is Spinal Tap. It's one of their old tunes they played in the 60s. And their music is never used in films outside their own. You know, they're, for all intents and purposes, a fake band, you know, so you see their movies and documentaries or whatever, and that's where you hear their music. So that's like a real rarity. I was like, what? So I'm, I'm a huge fan. So that, that was exciting to hear that. Yeah, so while this may be a cult film and uh, not too many people know about it, surprisingly, or maybe not so much, they see they could give it new life, it actually is due for a remake, according to a recent article. Jeremy, what can you tell us about that? Ah, well, Deadline here is reporting that Treehouse Pictures, they have set in motion for a diverse remake. 
Yes, I saw an interview with Keith Coogan and the gal who played Rose in the movie, and they said that they had actually talked to the producers of the film, and yeah, it's going to be an African-American family of kids this time around. Mm. And so, so it's kind of a different perspective and point of view of where they're going to take it, but they are lobbying to get some type of cameo in the film because they loved it so much they want to go back to that world. So we'll see if that happens somehow. Yeah, I mean, it was it was announced during this pandemic, so there's been really no movement on it other than just getting a few headlines for a week, maybe. Well, we'll see. Time will tell. We didn't think Bill and Ted Face the Music was ever going to come out, and uh, here we are just a few weeks away. So... Fingers crossed. Don't tell all the babysitters dead remake. <laughs> but we do it all here. Prequels, sequels, and reboots. So why don't we start talking what could happen next to this crazy clan of Crandall kids? Huh? Try saying that three times fast. So, Eric, in your mad dash this morning, what did you oh, come no. up with? <laughs> oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Contrary to past episodes i actually wrote something i have a thing i have i have like a whole paragraph of an idea (laughs) that's more than almost every other time i've been on so i'm sticking with all the original cast but everybody's grown up right this was what like 30 years ago 29 years ago did i do my math correctly so we're 30 years later right they're in their 40s and 30s now so i have prognosticated ahead all the same cast uh, we've got Swell. She's a fashion executive. She went to college and she like became an executive and she uh, started and runs the company, the fashion company HSP uh, and very stylized logo, which stands for high shoulder pads. But nobody knows that <laughs> because there are so many shoulder pads in that movie. So she's been running that for like 20 years and she's going to go on a much needed vacation to Italy for two weeks. So same theme, same theme here. So that's like the main start of that. And then she needs to find a dog sitter. See where I'm going here for her three dogs, Pogo, Brian and Gus. And uh, she needs to board them in a, in a kennel, but she gets a call that morning that there's a major gas leak at the kennel and she can't take her dogs to the kennel. So she tries to find her siblings um, to see if they'll take care of her dogs. And so Kenny, he is on an excursion he is turned into like an anthony bourdain type chef who like goes around the world and like does chef shows and stuff like that and he's all tattooed up so he's like still cool but he's got that edge and all that melissa she's an espn baseball color commentator so she's on assignment for baseball zach well i guess we can't use that actor so that's terrible but he's he's actually a contestant on the bachelor and then walter the youngest kid he's a tv executive who is in charge of the bachelor so he got his brother on that so they're all busy so they can't do it uh so she's got to find other arrangements and so because it's the morning of her flight she gets out her phone and she does the pause app and she finds a dog sitter who happens to be wait for it wait for it carolyn the evil receptionist from the first movie because (laughs) she has lost her job everybody hated working with her she ended up getting pushed out of every job that she had at every fashion corporation so now she works in the gig economy and she relies on Uber Eats, DoorDash, and all those other things. And uh, so she's doing the dog sitting. And so she takes it up, but they never actually meet because she just sets it up on the pause. And then she shows up for two weeks of staying at this nice home in LA for these three dogs. But she
she hates dogs. And so here's where we get to the main part of the movie because we haven't had a good talking dog movie in a long time. <laughs> yes, that's right. I am turning this into a talking dog movie. So uh, the rest of the story, and this is where my paragraph ends up, includes the dogs who can talk to each other wreaking havoc on Carolyn when they find out that she doesn't like dogs. And then somehow by the end of the movie, no consequences happen. Everybody ends up loving one another and <laughs> happy ending ensues. And I call it don't tell swell the dog sitter is mildly inconvenienced (laughs) (laughs) now i feel bad that we didn't give props to their pet dog elvis he did a great job in the film Uh, we salute you yeah Yeah, so all three of them are corgis i forgot to mention that so i i wanted to throw back to elvis maybe they're even like elvis puppies i'm not sure we could we could like or like third generation elvis dogs or whatever very nice talking dog movie and two of the dogs are named after the lecher men from the first movie yes <laughs> and gus and brian and then i threw in pogo because that's just fun so there you go excellent work under the gun and getting it done that's what my pandemic brain came up with all right jeff what do you got all right so i am going with don't tell mom the babysitter's dead Two sturak i'm intrigued it's... already wow okay so uh we begin as we ended with the end credit scene, as we see Wayne and Earl, the grave workers, looking down at the grave site and talking about the money that they got from this poor dead woman. That they're going to go to take this money to Las Vegas. So they do. They head to Las Vegas. And as soon as they get there, we find out that Earl, who's a little bit older, he's like in his early 50s, he is a lousy gambler. And he loses all of his part of the money in like 10 minutes. Earl, however, also has a lot of influence over the kind of dopier Wayne and ends up tricking. Wayne out of his part of the money too. So now Wayne gets abandoned by Earl who runs off with the money. So he's got no money and he's left there in Vegas. So he slumps down where people go to a bar and starts talking to the bartender about how his entire life has been a failure. Where did it all go wrong? This is where he goes into a flashback to when he was seven years old. And seven-year-old Wayne lived in a very nice house. They were a very affluent family, but the parents did work full-time. So they went through many different nannies, and none of them could quite seem to stick. And it wasn't really Wayne's fault. Wayne was like a a fairly good kid, but just one reason or another, they couldn't get a, a, a nanny to stick. So... They end up hiring or interviewing this middle-aged woman named Lucy Sturak, who puts on a happy face when the parents are there, and she's charming, and she's fun, and everything. So they end up hiring her. But as soon as her first day on the job, she's hired, the parents are gone, and her face falls, and she's just completely apathetic. She doesn't care what Wayne does or anything like that, which initially is wonderful. So Wayne's eating ice cream for every meal. Now, granted, this is also like 30 years in the past. So we're talking about like the 60s. So he's watching, you know, black and white TV and horror movies and Bonanza and blah, 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 blah. And so one evening before the parents come home, uh, he's watching Combat, which was kind of that war movie or war TV show that kids weren't really, was way too adult for kids, but the seven-year-old gets to watch it. And he's loving it and like the guns and the shooting and all that sort of stuff like that. And then he happens to notice that there are tears falling down Lucy's face. And even though Lucy usually doesn't even pay attention at all, um, and 
kind of against his normal, or I mean, I guess as a seven-year-old, you just kind of ask these things, like, kind of very bluntly, like, hey, are, are you okay? Like, what's wrong with you? And, uh, you know, after a little bit of struggle, like, no, no, nothing, I'm fine, like, leave me alone, like, blah, 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 blah. We then kind of find out that actually her husband had died in Vietnam, and ever since, she just hasn't been feeling anything at all. And that kind of breakthrough ends up opening up to Wayne and they end up start talking and she's kind of sharing who she is and, and, and really kind of finding joy in the things that Wayne is doing. They end up drawing much, much closer. And so then as the movie is kind of continuing, we see like a number of different things that they would go off and do together. They would spend a day at the ballpark. They would go to the circus or the zoo or Whatever. And Lucy is really finding the joy of life. And then we would have like a time lapse that uh, Lucy's actually Wayne's nanny for five years. And in that time, they become inseparable. But then five years later, Wayne is turning 12 and his parents decide that he no longer needs a nanny. And so they let Lucy go. And after like uh, a couple of days later, Lucy's walking to the store and sees Wayne, 12 year old Wayne with his friends and goes up to talk to him. And he just sneers at her and calls her a creepy old lady, like, get away from me. What's the matter with you? And the friends all laugh and blah, 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 blah. And Lucy is heartbroken. And I, I feel like we would probably get one like glance back that Wayne would give her. But nonetheless, Lucy's heart is broken. Her face is falls. She then does go to apply to be nanny again. But this time it is a very different person. She does not introduce herself as Lucy. She introduces herself as Ms. Sturak as credits roll. Oh, wow. The not a dark fun movie. prequel. <laughs> <laughs> zany. That's all I it's, could think of was just zany. It's true. <laughs> Oh, Jeff. Wow. I really thought we were just going to get a sequel or kind of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern story with the two mortuary workers. Oh, no. Prequel and sequel all in one. Pretty wild. Which I guess we could. We probably should, after that moment, have some sort of going back to what Wayne is actually doing and realizing all this. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, so I decided, as I do, to set it just a few years after the original so that we could catch up with these kids. Let's imagine this was more than just a modest moneymaker at the box office. So I give you Don't Tell Dad the Tour Manager's Dead. Taking place five years after the original, Swell has started her own trendy clothing line with Rose after finishing her education at a fashion institute. Kenny has been taken on as a sous chef to Wolfgang Puck, and Zach eloped with a girl his senior year of high school, never to be seen again. The younger kids, Walter and Melissa, are still at home with Mom, who's about to get remarried to <gasps> Mr. Egg from Clown Dog, who they can't stand. <laughs> Plus, Melissa's been hassled by Mom to focus more on her studies and not play her electric guitar all the time, not understanding why the family matriarch hates rock music so much. Meanwhile, Walter just can't catch a break at school, with everyone thinking he's a dork who only cares about quoting TV shows, especially family sitcoms, not realizing he's using it to mask his depression about never knowing his own dad. 
Salvation seemingly arrives for Melissa and Walter with their absentee father, Val, who it turns out is the lead singer of a famous rock band called Burnout, shows up at Thanksgiving unannounced. He ditched their mom a decade ago to pursue rock stardom, but now claims he wants to get to know his kids, which mom Swell and Kenny scoff at, saying he had his chance. But Melissa and Walter are more optimistic about building a relationship with Val and are looking for any chance to escape their future life with the annoyingly positive Mr. Egg. So, when they get dropped off at the bus depot for their month-long summer camp, the kids give their clothes and camp gear to a couple of short homeless people and secretly sneak out to their dad's concert with the backstage passes that the older kids threw in the trash. Val is thrilled to see them, introducing the kids to his band, security guard, and the groupies. He lets the kids order extravagant room service and trash the hotel room in what they both agree is the best night of their lives. They tell Val they want to go on tour with him, while the fake Walter and Melissa enjoy summer camp in their place. It turns out Val isn't a bad guy, just a mildly selfish idiot. But since his band's popularity has been waning in the approaching era of boy bands and rap music, he's begun to take inventory of his life and genuinely wants to be a better person. The kids thrive on tour. Soon Walter's learning to run the soundboard and the light rig for the burnout concerts, uh, revolutionizing their stage show with new video setups, while Melissa's writing songs for the band and learning how to run the business side with the band's tour manager, Harvey. The busy manager welcomes Melissa as his assistant, saying he has no family, rock and roll is his life. It's clear that his stress level is very high since he's constantly popping anti-anxiety medication. One night at a show in Chicago, the kids observe Harvey making a deal with the mob to finance the last leg of the tour since he blew the money in a high-stakes poker game, hoping to boost their revenue stream enough for a European tour, where the band is much more popular these days. But when Harvey accidentally grabs a bottle of rat poison he mistook for his medication, he dies. The kids discover his body, realizing the mob will come after Val if the tour doesn't make a million-dollar profit to pay back the loan in the next 30 days. Walter and Melissa tell everyone that Harvey checked himself into the Betty Ford Clinic for addiction to his anti-anxiety meds. Really, they have stuffed him in a road case and shoved it under the stage of the venue. With a forged note from Harvey, the kids begin running the shows and transacting business through more instructions they claim are being mailed by the recovering Harvey. Things go well with Walter and Val building a strong father-son relationship that helps the spaced-out rocker learn a few things about common sense through the filter of famous TV dads that Walter admires, like Danny Tanner on Full House and Jason and Seaver from Growing Pains. Unfortunately, the dream doesn't last long, as the tour bus breaks down and they miss a gig in Detroit, Michigan, which sets back their million-dollar goal and brings added pressure from the mob. Adding to the craziness, Val gets laryngitis in Des Moines, Iowa, causing Melissa to fill in on vocals through a voice modulator as Val lip-syncs hilariously to her fumbling the lyric to their classic songs. The bad press causes ticket sales to drop, putting the European tour and Val's life in jeopardy. The final straw is when Burnout's drummer quits with three shows to go in order to take a recurring guest spot on Lorenzo Lamas's Renegade TV series. Hijinks continue to ensue as the mob boss forces his 18-year-old son Ronnie into the band as the new drummer, even though he's terrible. Turns out Ronnie's a nice kid who never even wanted to play drums. It's just a case of a father living vicariously through a son. So Melissa and Walter try to boost Ronnie's confidence to help him play to a pre-recorded drum track on stage that impresses his father at a concert in Cleveland. Melissa and Ronnie strike up a romance in the process. Melissa and Walter call it a favor to swell, revealing what they've been up to, and 
explaining the band needs a fresh new look to get them enough notoriety to sell out the final show. Swell shows up and reconciles with Val, providing a new hip wardrobe for the band, and Val asks Melissa to join him on stage as the co-lead singer and play some of her original songs. Walter records and mixes her song, Pain is Past, films a music video, sends it to a radio station and MTV in advance of the big show where it becomes a hit. Meanwhile, after some wacky behavior from the fake Melissa and Walter at summer camp tips off the counselors that these are not the kids who signed up to be there, Mom figures out what happened and follows the burnout tour to their final concert date at Madison Square Garden to retrieve her children. When she hears Melissa singing on the radio during the drive, though, Mom's heart is touched, and she softens a bit on her matriarchal fury. At a press conference catered by Kenny, who also makes amends with his dad, the buzz over the band's new look and sound is a success. The concert is a wild, sold-out event, and Melissa is the star of the evening. Mom and Mr. Egg storm the stage during the finale, but it turns out Mr. Egg can shred on guitar, and he earns the respect of the kids in that moment. The mob boss also jumps on stage to assassinate Val, having not yet received his payment, but Ronnie calms down his dad and lets him live his dream by performing a drum solo in front of a crowd to a standing ovation. Backstage, Mom and Val call a truce as he apologizes for abandoning her with five kids all those years ago. The mob boss forgives the debt when he sees how Ronnie has grown into being his own man on tour and finally fulfilling his own ambition of momentary rock stardom. Finally, we see that Melissa and Walter are allowed to continue on with the band during the summer European tour as credits roll. Don't tell Dad the tour manager's dead. <laughs> that was a lot. I did not expect the mob. <laughs> I, no one I, expects the mob. I think I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. I'm just honestly surprised there wasn't a corn hellscape. Yeah. <laughs> no, that would have to be, you know, they're literally going through cornfields in Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> Now it's time to take a break and tell you about our friends over at the Cult Film Club podcast. It's the monthly show where Jamie, Pax, and Sean talk about the weird and obscure movies they love to death. Past episodes include My Stepmother is an Alien, Streets of Fire, My Science Project, Young Sherlock Holmes, and Repo Man. It's a great place to rediscover movies you've forgotten from summer days watching cable TV or never even knew existed. Coming up in August, the Cult Film Club crew is bringing you a discussion of Secret Admirer, starring C. Thomas Howell, Lori Laughlin, and Kelly Preston. Find the Cult Film Club on all your favorite podcast apps, at CFC Pod on Twitter, or at cultfilmclub.com. And now, back to the show. All right, well, those were some interesting pitches. Let's see how these fall here. Adam, where, uh, where does your vote fall? Well, I mean, I have to say, like, uh, Jeff's idea of a prequel, I mean, that's that's pretty interesting to me, like the Mrs. Sturak story, because, yeah, it's like, how did she get to be that grizzled old lady? And, and yet, you know, you have Eric, bra- you know, just breaking down the walls here. What's possible? A talking dog movie. And, and we really didn't expand on that. You know what I'm saying? Like, we expanded on the life of the woman who has to take care of the dogs, but we don't know what the dogs were up to. What are they? Their hijinks. And so I feel like I gotta know what these dogs would do. So I gotta vote for Eric. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> See you gotta you gotta give him just enough information, but not too much, right? You gotta you gotta keep him guessing, wanting more, mm-hmm. you know. Alright, Eric. Where's your vote, Paul? <laughs> Boy. Oh, 
Adam, if it's, there's so much. There's a mob movie in there. <laughs> I mean, Sturek. I want to know more about her. Like, I mean, really, when you've got such an old lady who's just so mean, like it had to come from somewhere, right? Don't you want to know that story? I'm I'm going with Jeff's. I, I just want to know more about this evil crone. Like, how did she turn out to be such a cold-hearted witch? Okay, Jeff, where does your vote fall? <laughs> well, I guess... Unlike you, Adam, like, I, I gotta say, the prospect of a talking dog movie, ah, I'm not sure I enjoy a good talking dog movie. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, like, like I can definitely visualize your pitch, and it does feel very, like, along those same lines, the kids kind of putting it together. I do like that it does seem to be a little bit more emphasis on the kids themselves rather than just on uh, Sue Ellen, so I would go with Adam's. Oh dear! Oh no! Oh, dear. <laughs> I, it's one I've never had this piece. happen before. What's happening? It's is it coming down to Jeremy? It is, oh, and it is oh, my boy. choice. Oh boy! Or oh. I will auction off the vote to the highest bidder. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, I'm a public school teacher, so I lose. <laughs> um, shoot! <laughs> so much pressure. There's so it much is. on the line. Well, and they're they're all so different. Yeah. So it it comes down to what appeals the most to you, Jeremy. What would you want ah. to sit through? Could Mrs. Sturick have ties to the mob? Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, the only way we find it out is through her talking dog. <laughs> we got to pick one and make it work. What are we doing? You got to commit. You got you can't hedge your bets here. Yeah. Well, let's what go. Are you going with, with? You going with let's Jeff? Go with the prequel with Jeff, yeah. Hey! All right, Sturak. Oh, uh, my, my streak <laughs> is over. I'm a little upset, <laughs> but that's okay. I, I couldn't really logically think that I was going to go four for four with my appearances, so <laughs> well done, Jeff. You've come up with a really serious, depressing movie that beat... <laughs> My talking dog hijinks. Which puts us in the same scenario as the original studio, right? They purchased a serious drama and then said, how do we add some comedic elements to it? So that, I feel, is our job at this moment now. How do you add some levity and ridiculousness to the Sturak story? You add talking dogs to it, of course. <laughs> that does do it. Uh, but it's a period piece because it was Wayne and what's the other guy's name? Earl. Did you come up with those names, or were there those actual names? I looked. I couldn't find them, so I just made them up. I think they have name tags uh, there Do and they? stuff. I, yeah. I, honestly, like I tried to rewatch that one scene, and the the only one that I had was muted, so I couldn't even hear what they were saying. So I'm guessing they were talking about going to Vegas. Is that true? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, I, that, 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 I think that's like the last little line he says. Because, like, do you have any of that money left? You know, that he's like, yeah, well, we should go to Vegas. So I, I think that that is definitely, like you said, where it begins is they are there. Uh, but then it's, yeah, so what is their game? You know, what what do they think that they are uh, going to master and make some money at? And I, I mean, is what is the most ridiculous form of gambling in Vegas? That's the question. Or, you know, like, I'm just trying to imagine, like, you know, so it's not going to be the rule let wheel you know it's not going to be blackjack you know it's got to be something that is just uh maybe a, a new game that's just popped up and they get excited like i know these days you can play war just the card game war against a dealer i would say that one but they use that in national lampoon right okay. vegas vacation. Oh, you're, right, that. you're right yeah gotta be something novel oh what if there was like some kind of plinko game <laughs> <laughs> 
don't know. <laughs> Giant Plinko. Well, and I was wondering, like, what what could possibly their mortuary worker skills give them the ability to do in Vegas that would, you know, put the odds in their favor? That's what I'm... I've got Gizmodo here with nine casino games too ridiculous to believe. Uh, hands up and give me your cash. Literal one-armed bandit. Uh, that's an old one. Rocky Machines. Like Rocky Balboa gambling machines. Um, spam slot machines. They're just picking ridiculous themes. We need a ridiculous premise. And I say it has to do with weighing uh, something, you know, because they're, they're carrying caskets, they're carrying bodies and stuff. So what if they have to, you have to guess the weight inside of Elvis's coffin or something like that, you know what I'm saying? It's a, and then they get it right on the money and they're making some cash, but then it makes Wayne kind of flashback and make him wonder. He's just like, I wonder whatever happened to Lucy or whatever. Like, just for some reason, like, he remembers a moment they shared a game they used to play, you know, mm. that was guess the weight, you know, of something like that. Tic-tac-toe oh. against a chicken? Oh, God. <laughs> or it could be, like, guessing the number of whatever's in a jar. Yes. And that could, that could flashback to, like, a county fair where the kid is, like, playing that game because every county fair has that game where you win the jelly beans or whatever. Mm-hmm. So same premise. So, yeah, so I think you start there and then, yeah, as far as like the flashback, like, you know, when you're in the sixties, then you, you have to wonder, okay, what makes it? Cause you know, when we think about like the flashback films, you got like my girl or the Sandlot or you know, like all, all the, the movies taking place in that era. Mm-hmm. I mean, the comedy, I feel like they don't pull much from the era itself. And say, like, mm. wasn't this funny when, you know, like kids aren't going to get it anyway, if that's your target audience. But I, f- I feel like if you want to add, you know, some comedy to that, maybe it just has to do with Lucy. Like, what if her her grief takes a different form, you know? So, like, what if she has a, a certain tick that's not sad, you know, but it's something that is kind of silly. Like, maybe she does have a, a talking dog. There we go. We, we want to keep that motif. Maybe she has a dog <laughs> she thinks is talking to her all the time, and that is how she she's coping. And that, like, leads to, you know, some sort of thing where, like, Wayne the Kid is saying, like, oh, yeah, she's got a talking dog, and there's some circus or side show guy that wants to steal the dog and then there's a whole mission where they got to get the dog back oh even though he doesn't really talk but it's kind of like the michigan j frog premise the guy who kidnaps the dog is like waiting he's like we gotta activate this dog we gotta give him something to say (laughs) i don't know is he in the mafia (laughs) yeah probably (laughs) we we have to activate this dog We can or, activate or, him when we take him to the corn hellscape. Yep. Yes. Yep. Or it's something to yep. do with the Cold War. Maybe there's like a spy in town. The CIA thinks that there is somebody that I mean, planted a message in a dog and the dog barks out in Morse code something. And so like that gets mixed up. And so now they got to rescue the dog from the CIA. I feel like we're going in a... Uh, I, did we watch this movie? Because I don't recall <laughs> there being this much. This isn't like better off dead or something like that where there's animated sequences or something because my thought was if her tick is apathy or whatever it is if wayne figures out to do some crazy things that only a seven-year-old would think to do that has no supervision and then she ends up joining him because then having a 40-year-old do that that might be wacky right whether it's like 
they go to a, an ice cream parlor and literally order like $400, maybe not that much money, but in the 60s, that'd be insane. But they order like, you know. We'll have $5,000 worth of ice cream, please. That's, that's, yeah, I don't know, something like that, or, or even like, I don't know what a toy store in the 60s would look like. But I mean, I guess the nice thing is, too, is that if you do the whole time lapse thing where you have five years, then it could literally be there's something you can do during Christmas, there's something you can do during Thanksgiving, during summer, during which, you know, like all the different seasons to do stuff. But I'm just saying there's there's no conflict there's in no the conflict. middle of it. I mean, there's the conflict of her, like the very end of him growing up and her getting fired and then him not acknowledging her kindly. But it feels like during their time together, it feels like there needs to be something that they get through together. They pull through together. And maybe it is just his attempts to pull her from her apathy. But Or another option is to kind of add a third act where it's if the conflict is kind of supposed to be Wayne feeling like his life is worthless and that somehow, because that's the other part too, is that, that I guess the story kind of got away from me. I don't know how this flashback helps him with that. I, I, I don't know how he's feeling any better about himself after, wow, I really destroyed this woman's life. Well, <laughs> time to go gamble some more. <laughs> you know, but I have no money. Oh, yeah. Well, so. I, I think it has to be like, maybe we do see a follow-up scene where he did actually apologize to her later. Like, so we think that it ended badly and then like we realize at some point that he did go to her or maybe Maybe he sent her a letter and maybe somewhere, I don't know, maybe flashback to the Crandall home or like they are her car somewhere with Liza opening up the trunk. And there's a letter in there that she kept all these oh. years that was from Wayne apologizing. Even better. I mean, not, not better. That's great. But, but <laughs> what if what if that's where the drag queens were going? They were going to Vegas to perform. And so the car ah, shows up. Yes. Because for me, the, the the loose thread for me that I would like to be is the fact that, yes, we we all hated the babysitter. She was horrible and stuff like that. But she literally died and then ends up in an unmarked grave. It's like, oh. With no police investigation, by the way. this woman a bone. And so just like to have some sort of thing where he realizes, especially if there is this emotional connection, that he realizes. Oh, that was the lady I buried. Like, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good way to go. That's that, I think that ties it all together. That car. What if he fights the drag queen? Is that a conflict for you? There's like a big fist fight? Over trying to get the car because it was that old a car. Yeah. So he would recognize it. Yeah. Right, right. So that, that could be some hijinks that he and Earl get up to is stealing the car back from the, the drag queens, but they get beat up. And yeah, so I, I think there's, there's a little bit more to work with there for sure. But yeah, and then that, it means so much to him. And then the last scene obviously is he makes a new headstone and puts it on the grave and then or you know single tear power on the play but i think you're right yeah single tear etches his initials that's kind of weird i don't know <laughs> defaces the headstone <laughs> digs her up and like dances with her or something i don't know Oh, it just got dark in a different way, Jeff. <laughs> you could live, you could leave flowers, or you know, deface her grave or dance with her corpse. Yeah. <laughs> what last dance with Mary Jane plays? Uh, all right. Well, I think we've done enough damage to the legacy of Mrs. Sturak. For you know one what? Night. She did that damage herself. 
she just wanted some order in that house, you know? Uh, but yes, there you go. Sturak? <laughs> is, is that what we're going with? Or do we feel like there's a better title to, to bring people in? Well, it was Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, colon, Sturak. Okay, it's, fair it, enough. It's hearkening back to, was that our first episode? Or what was it that we did Back to the Future? Oh, yeah. Tannen? Tannen. Yes, <laughs> one of our high points so early on. We peaked on our we first show. On okay. First <laughs> this is unfortunate. It's always good to say that you peaked <laughs> on your first episode when you have a guest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great job we've been doing this for five years running on fumes <laughs> all right well again eric thank you for coming back thanks for putting the time into that pitch and giving us the possibility of talking dogs maybe somebody else will pick that up just change the script a little bit <laughs> i really thought i had a winner guys i i worked <laughs> you did that, the work into it we appreciate I, that i typed like half of a microsoft word document wow yeah i looked up on i IMDb, what the names of the characters were. I tried hard. And for all of you who uh, tuned in thinking this was a sequel to Adventures in Babysitting, <laughs> just like half our panel, we apologize. I had a good idea for that one, too. Until next time, the podcast is done, man. We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com or SQPod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.